Good information, it seems, is a rare and valuable commodity. For every nugget of quality information, it seems like there's five equally awful pieces of advice just floating around it. Case in point, that last statistic. While it can probably be measured as a general statement, the same really is true within the running community. Every day we're inundated with questionable studies and off-the-mark articles telling you how getting faster is just one clickbait article away. Now, luckily for us, there's guys like Alex Hutchison out there. Alex has written his sweat science column for Runner's World for years, as well as being featured in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, the New Yorker, and many, many more. He's an award-winning writer, breaking down credible information into chunks we can apply and understand. He really knows his stuff, he has a new adventure ahead of him, and he's up first in just a few seconds. Also, we have race director extraordinaire Alan Brooks. He's here to talk about the Scotia-Toronto Waterfront Marathon. It's less than a week away. It's time to get excited for that. You're listening to The Terminal Mile at The Terminal Mile on Instagram and Twitter at Tracky Radio Production. So you know you're this uh, you're this famous sports scientist now. Uh, you know, known the world around. You had your Runner's World column. Uh, you also have a book that's coming out, Endure. Uh, it's coming out in February. People can pre-order that right now. But what some of that audience may not know is that you're actually a fairly accomplished runner. You are a national level runner. Uh, I believe 13, 15, 52 for the for the 5,000, uh, 343 for the 1500. Knowing what you know now, do you think that you could have used your powers to get a little bit faster? Yeah, that's an interesting question. First, I have to correct a very important point. I ran 342, not 343. Mm. Um, (laughs) But, uh, no, I I think about that a lot, actually. Like, you know, I've spent about 10 years writing about sports science and, for the most part, writing about the science of endurance. Like, has that knowledge given me anything that would have made me faster compared to, you know, when I was running, I was fairly, I kept it pretty simple. I didn't think about this stuff too much. And from a physical perspective, I don't think there's, there's a huge amount. Like I, I had some injuries that, that kind of derailed my career. And, and of course, in hindsight, I can say, oh, I should have done this differently or strengthened that or done more mileage here or, you know, less intensity there. But I knew that stuff at the time, too. It's like, you know, we're always just trying to balance, uh, trying to get as fast as possible with staying healthy and with doing all the other little things. I do think, like, I, I think if there was one thing I was going to sort of send a, a message in a time machine to my younger self, it would be to pay more attention to, to sports psychology, to, to work with a good sports psychologist, work on things like uh, self, motivational self-talk, because I think early early in my own career, I was good at rising to the occasion. I would I would outperform expectations in big races. But later on, as as sort of expectations from myself and maybe mostly from myself, but maybe a little bit from others grew, uh, I sometimes ended up underperforming in big races. And I think um, I think I could have done a better job at at, at managing the, the the psychology of running. But uh, but yeah, no, there's no there's no secret workout that I would send back to myself that would have would have taken me to the next level. You know, I'm glad that, that you mentioned the brain, and maybe it's not just psychology, but uh, I mean, I sent you that video yesterday from from our good friend, the, the Griffins up in Guelph. Uh, there's this new focus, maybe it's not new, but an increased focus on neurology and incorporating that into workouts and just getting the, the mind activated and that sort of stuff. What kind of importance would you put on on that in a running workout? Yeah, I mean, I think, so, the, the brain is important, and, and there's been this surge of research, I would say, in the last decade or so, that has really pushed back our understanding of, of what's going on in the brain, uh, you know, during high-level uh, athletic performance. I, I do think it's, it's tempt, uh, you know, a trap that I try not to fall into is to assume that 20 years ago, no one thought the brain was important. Um, Everyone always knew the brain was important. A century ago, ago you know, A.V. Hill, the guy who, who uh, came up with the concept of VO2 max, he would, say, he would say, here's VO2 max, but of course we also know that the brain matters too. So the question isn't, you know, do we know whether the brain is important? It's can we change it? And 
I think we're kind of still in a gray zone right now where, where there are some tools emerging. Um, like the, the thing the Griffins were doing, I, I, with sort of tapping their feet on, <laughs> on different dots to, as a neurological warm-up, I honestly have no idea um, uh, whether that helps or, or what it's really supposed to do for distance runners, which doesn't mean that it doesn't help. It just I, I, I don't know what it does. But there's, there's other things people are experimenting with, things like transcranial direct current stimulation, which is like running a current through, your, through certain parts of your brain, hmm. which have recently been shown to actually um, you know, acutely boost performance by a couple percent in some cases. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not banned and, and so, but, but no one really knows exactly how it works or, or what's supposed to happen. So we're kind of at this place where people are just kind of grasping around trying to figure out how we get our neuro, our, our, you know, our neurons firing more effectively to, to, uh, to, to enhance endurance or speed. And I think, I don't know if I, I wouldn't recommend that people spend too much time chasing that quite yet. I think it's, I think it's not there yet, which is not to say that there's not some benefits that some people may be getting, but I, I, I to me, it's still, it, it's still maybe a, 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 a few years away. For sure. For sure. So, you know, there, there's no exercises or, or even say mindfulness or something that, that you would add in, uh, you know, for our listeners who are runners who may not are, may not be incorporating that into their plans right now. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I've, I've written a couple of times, uh, there's some, a couple of interesting threads here, like mindfulness. Um, you know, there's some really interesting research that, that I wrote about then at the University of San Diego or UC San Diego, where they're using a sort of sports focused mindfulness training program to work with athletes. And they're do, they do, they can do MRI studies where they show that, um, this training helps normal people, helps their brains look more like the brains of elite athletes when they're faced with, with challenging situations. Um, and so, so I've, I've actually found the, the sort of uh, mindfulness is a real fad these days, but I think there's actually some really compelling reasons to think that it can be helpful for athletes. Um, and, and what I wonder about is, is if you're an elite athlete running, you know, hundred miles a week or something like that, how much mindfulness you've cultivated just by the act of running. And, and similarly, I, I did, there's a, there's a really interesting researcher named Samuel Marcora in, in Britain who has this brain endurance training protocol where you, you do these kind of computer games. You sit at the computer and you, you know, shapes or letters flash on the screen and you tap a button compared corresponding to which shape or letter it is. And they can optimize this test so that it, it really taxes your, your impulse inhibition, which is an important trait for, 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 uh, for endurance performance. And the idea is that you can train your brain's endurance so that you're able to kind of keep pushing, keep your finger in the flame for a little bit longer. And I actually tried the, his, his, that protocol for, for 12 weeks leading up to the Ottawa Marathon a few years ago. And again, the, the theory is really cool, and it makes sense to me. And the question, and, and there have been some interesting results that he's had in, in some experiments suggesting that it really does enhance your endurance. The question is, to what extent does it enhance, it enhance your mental endurance in someone who, again, who's, if you're already doing 100 miles a week, maybe you've already pushed your brain to the point of diminishing returns. So I, I, I've actually, I, a friend of mine emailed me, uh, maybe it was last year, leading up to the Tokyo Marathon, saying, hey, you know, I'm training pretty hard, but I'm, I'm looking to take the next step. What would you recommend in terms of brain training? And... You know, I was torn. It's like, do I suggest, hey, you could do these sorts of brain endurance training or mindfulness training, or, uh, or you know, is that wasting his time and, and using up energy and recovery time that he could be using somewhere else? Because, you know, if you're training for a marathon and if you're not a pro, it's, it's hard to find time to train as it is and to recover, let alone to add something else. And in the end, I decided my advice to him was uh, I wouldn't pursue that right now. If I were you, if you want to do something related to the brain, I would pursue motivational talk training like sports psychology, which is more old, old school. It's been around for decades, although people have been studying it more recently. So, so I don't mean to be like a, uh, a bucket of cold water or anything. So I, think, I think these sort of ideas are cool and they're developing and they may be, be ready within the next few years. And if someone's inter really interested in pursuing them, I'd say, you know, by all means, go for it. Uh, give it a shot. See what you can find out. But in a world of like finite time and energy, 
you know, I, I think it goes without saying that, first of all, max out what you can do physically, like train. <laughs> if you want to run a faster marathon, you run more um, to the point. But, you, you know, we all reach a point where it's like, if I run more, I'm going to get injured or I can't recover or I don't have any more time. And that's, and, and then there's still more things on the hierarchy. It's okay, well, focus more on your nutrition or make sure you're sleeping 10 hours a night or whatever. And after that, if you still got time, then you're a very lucky person. Um, and at that point, then you may be slot in the, this sort of brain training stuff. I'm glad that you've uh, mentioned the marathon a couple times uh, because it was just last month that uh, with the Berlin Marathon, Kipchoge released his uh, extensive running log, uh, which was very, very interesting, uh, you know, for people like, like you and me. Was there anything that, that you really pulled out of there uh, that you might be able to pass along to the average person? But also, you know, at, at, the, at the same time, you know, was there was there anything that that really kind of piqued your interest uh, looking at it that you know maybe we aren't doing here right now, even with our elites? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing about Kipchoge's training log, or the most surprising thing about Kipchoge's training log, was the lack of surprises. Hmm. Like this, this was this. It's bread and butter stuff. You know, it's like lots of easy running, some long hard, some long runs with some harder efforts, and some some bread and butter intervals, you know, like a bunch of 400s or a bunch of kilometer repeats and things like that. So after, after that came out, I, I was exchanging emails with a few people like uh, Michael Joyner, who's a, a physiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He's the guy who back in 1991 first wrote this paper saying, hey, it should be possible for humans to run a two-hour marathon. And he, he emailed me and said, hey, look at Kipchoge's training. Now go back to Fred Wilt's classic book, How They Train, which uh, you know, there were a couple editions back in the 60s and early 70s, where he just basically he just listed the training programs of like every great runner who would, who would reply to his, his, his letters. Yeah. He said, look at Frank Shorter's training and, and, and post that on Twitter if you can. So I, I, looked, I flipped open the pages and you look at the description of Frank Shorter's training, looks a lot like Elliot Kipchoge's training. You post them side by side and it's like, yeah, you know, like, the, we, we understand the basics and the basics are not, you know, what's needed to run like Elliot Kipchoge runs is a lot of really, really hard work over a long period of time, consistency, discipline in, in, uh, in, in doing the right thing. I thought there was an interesting interview of Abel Karui, who just came second in Chicago, who last year decided to leave his training camp and go train with, with Elliot Kipchoge. And, and his quote was, you know, Elliot's way smarter than me and he's absolutely a professional. And if Elliot says, you know, the workout's at 6 o'clock, you know the workout will be at 6 o'clock in the morning and Elliot will be there. And if Elliot says it's time to sleep at 8 o'clock, he will be asleep at 8 o'clock. Like, he executes. He does all these things. So so I, I know that's not, like, the, the sexy answer, but it's, like, the, the answer is don't, don't look for what we don't know. It's, it's make sure you execute perfectly what we do know. That being said, um, I know Steve Magnus definitely mentioned it, um, but he thought it was kind of weird that that there was you know a lot of threshold work was was missing from from the workouts uh, as well the the length of the taper period as well too seemed very unfamiliar. What what do you make of those things? Hey, that's interesting. So during the whole breaking two thing last uh, or earlier this year when Kipchoge was training under the the under the eyes of, of the, the great Nike t- scientific team. So he was wearing a, a, a heart rate monitor and a GPS watch for every run and uploading that data back to Nike headquarters um, where they were plugging it into a computer with a bunch of sophisticated algorithms to, to analyze exactly the stress of his training and how it would increase his fitness. And one of the key goals of this uh, software was that they wanted to figure out because um, if, if you if you understand exactly how he bought his, his body reacts to training, you can just figure out exactly how long he should taper for and how much he should taper. And so, and they had plugged in a bunch of his previous marathon buildups into this software. And one of their early conclusions was, we think he hasn't been tapering enough. We think he should taper a couple days earlier, and that will allow him to give a little more, get a little more kick into his legs. That was in like. January and February, that's what they were saying when I was when I was talking to the Nike scientific team, that we're telling Elliot he needs to taper more. So then you get to race day, and talking to the scientists, what they said is, actually, you know, once we got more data into the system, and once we had uh, refined the algorithm, algorithm a little more, 
it turned out that his taper was just about perfect. And so they, they actually made no changes whatsoever to his taper. So, you know, I, everyone's different and it depends on the, you know, both what kind of training you're used to and what kind of, how heavy your training is and just what your personal characteristics are. But from Nike's point of view, what Elliot was doing was perfectly suited to his particular physiological characteristics, which doesn't mean, which doesn't mean that anyone who goes out there and tries to replicate his training program will get the same benefits, of course. For sure, for sure. I I hope we didn't throw off anyone's uh you know Scotia Marathon training uh just now with that you know if you're tapering <laughs> probably continue to taper for for a little while stick to your plan for sure. Uh you know I mentioned Steve Magnus. Uh, there's also Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Uh, there's yourself. There's a whole bunch of notable uh sports scientists uh who are specializing in in running and it's been really kind of neat to see. That being said, there's been a lot of uh not so great. Not so credible news out there. Uh, you know, a story comes to mind of of my little brother's roommate was running collegiately uh, and drank a whole bunch of beet juice. Wasn't sure what he was doing, but it read somewhere that <laughs> drinking lots of beet juice, you know, was going to help him out. And uh, he got quite the surprise when he went to the washroom for the first time. Apparently, it, it's a very exciting story. But uh, I I don't know what do what do you think about you know, you, you look around and it seems like there's so many experts out there now who don't really, you know, who aren't really super in tune and, and they might have the best of intentions. You know, looking at that, how do you combat that and how do you make sure that your voice is the loudest? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's definitely, the landscape has changed a lot in the last 10 years. So, like, when I started running it, writing about sports science about 10 years ago, it was because... I, I noticed a few, there, there, were, there was a column in the New York Times by Gina Collada at the time called Personal Best, and it was, it was just totally different than most of the writing about sports science that I'd seen because it was based on peer-reviewed research, and she, so it wasn't just like call up a coach and, and find out what they say you should do. It was, so what have we actually found about whether a, you know, what a warm-up does? And, and what a cooldown does, or what lactic acid is, or, or things like that. And it was like, wow, I didn't know people were actually studying this stuff, and, and this stuff is not like easily accessible. And, and so I was like, oh, maybe I'll get into this area, because it seems like a really, real untapped niche. And, and, and so that's what I did. Um, and, and I wasn't the only one. A lot of people <laughs> have started to fill that, that area, and, and, and a lot of them have do it very well. Like, there's a, there's a bunch of people who I... And, and, and the great thing about social media is, you know, I, I can interact with these people on, on Twitter and, and with scientists who are doing the work, uh, people like Andy Jones, who's the, the sort of the beat juice guru, and you can hear directly from them what they think and, 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 and how their work should be interpreted. So I think for the most part, it's a lot easier for someone who's interested in this stuff to, to get access to information and not just to sort of secondary information, but to get access to the original, like to, uh, you know, the original research to, to look at exactly what it says and what it finds. Now, the, the downside, as you said, is that, there, you know, there's not just you know, 20 people who are writing good stuff. There's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who are trying to make a living as, as, as coaches or bloggers or, or, you know, writers in various other ways. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum of reliability of information. Um, I, I guess, you know, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be very helpful for me to say, well, the best advice I can give is read my stuff and nobody else. <laughs> um, but I guess, I guess what, like, what I try and do when I'm writing about research, especially online where it's easy to link out to other, other sources, is not to just say, here's what you should do, but to say, here's what a study has found here's a link to the study, here's the key graph from the study, so you can see how big the difference was and whether it seems meaningful to you. And, and then here, here's what I think it means. So it's like kind of trust but verify, like read different people's opinions, but, but take a look at how they're backing up these, these statements. And, and ideally, if you can see the original, you know, it's not always possible to read the original journal article, and maybe that's, uh, that can be sometimes pretty, pretty dense. Uh, and hard to interpret, but but hopefully you can get a, the sense of where this information is coming from that it's it's sourced and and uh, and I, I guess not to not to um, diverge from the point, but I, I should also emphasize that peer reviewed 
journal articles aren't the only good source of information. I mean, talking to a coach who's been training athletes for 20 years is also a, a really, really important, maybe even a better source of information if you want to train successfully. So you want to integrate science with experience. And you, you don't want to be the guy who's just doing every week you're doing something different based on what you read uh, you know, on the Internet about a cool new way of training. So you want to have consistency. You want to rely on experience. But, and, and, and if you're looking for like the science aspect of it, uh, you, you kind of want to understand where the information is coming from. So whoever, whatever it is you're reading, it should be transparent what, what, the, what the source of this claim is or what the basis of this claim that, say, beet juice makes you better is. So I guess that's the sort of you know, buyer beware kind of philosophy where you, where you trust. We don't just trust, but you verify where the information is coming from. You've actually written a lot about beet juice, uh, and and I should say that there is a lot of uh, you know proven benefits to it. Uh, a lot of which you have written about uh, with Runners World. Is that something where you, where you practice what you preach? You know, is is beet juice on the table every night for you? Yeah, that that's a great question. And so I will say this: I have never <clears throat> I have never drunk a sip of beet juice. I don't even know what it tastes <laughs> like. Um, I've never taken caffeine. Like I, that's another. People ask me about supplement. Like when when people think about sports science, they think about various supplements and performance enhancing things. There are very few that work. on the On the list of things that work, I would say is like beet juice, caffeine, uh, creatine, maybe beta alanine, maybe baking soda. I've never tried any of those things, um, and that's partly because I sort of it, look. If I was a, if I was an elite mar- marathoner or so, or you know trying to be an elite distance runner now, I would probably take beet juice. But I'm I'm no longer in that serious competitive phase, so it just to me it's not like I, I'm I'm racing against myself, not against other people. So I'm not taking these things. Um, so the other, I mean the other aspect of that is that I kind of I, and this has to do with sports technology too. Like I I get press releases literally every day um, saying, hey, we've got this amazing new you know. Uh, electronic shirt that monitors your workout and tells you how hard you're working and blah blah blah. Can we send you one and you can try it out? And and I don't do that. I don't try stuff out because you know product reviews are are useful, but but I figure like what my role can be is not how did this fit? Was the color nice? Did you like wearing it? But did it work? So I try to only write about the research, not about the subjective experience. So which means that I <laughs> I don't have experience of, uh, you know, the negative uh, digestive effects of, of beet juice before a race. Um, so other people have to have to provide that information. But, but I, I, yeah, so the two things is I just want to write about what other stuff works. And also, I, like, I, this is something I wrestle, wrestle with a lot. It's like, what is the perfect purpose of sport? Why are we out there running? And if I could take a pill that made me 2% faster automatically, would that have meaning to me? Or, you know, like, it, does that change my experience of running? And for me, who's no, you know, not right now, realistically, I'm I'm never going to set a, again a personal best at a distance that I competed at when I was younger. It just it it doesn't necessarily have as much. It doesn't it doesn't seem useful to me to to take a take a performance enhancing pill. But I, I I should I should follow it up by saying that I eat a lot of beets now, and that is thanks to the research I've been reading about because. In addition to being a performance enhancer, there's an increasing amount of evidence that the nitrates in beets and leafy greens like arugula can have a a really big impact on your health, on things like blood pressure. Um, So I eat a lot of beets, but I've never, never drunk the juice. Talking to Alex Hutchison right now, and uh, you can find him on Twitter at Sweat Science. Uh, I mentioned run- Runner's World a little bit earlier, and I do want to get back to that because there are some some big changes in your life uh, surrounding that as well, too, as as many people will know. But I do want to touch uh, first on your book, Endure. It's up for pre-order right now. You can follow the link at that uh, previously mentioned uh, Twitter location. Talk to me. What what's in that book? What can we expect to to see in there? Well, the, the book is called Endure, uh, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Um, and thank you for asking about it. Um, <laughs> it'll be out in February. And, and basically, it's, it, it's my attempt to understand what endurance is and what defines the limits of endurance. And it kind of, it kind of goes back to a race that I had when I was in university. I was a, a four-minute 401, 402 guy in, for 1500 in university and had been since partway through high school. 
Uh, and in my third year of university, when I, I had a race where uh, it was in Sherbrooke, and, and uh, the guy calling the splits, I don't know if he was just having trouble translating or if he started his watch at the wrong time, but he gave me these ridiculous splits that made me think I was running really fast. He, he, he told me I'd, he, he said 27 at the first 200 and 57 at 400. And I was like, man, I feel amazing, and I just <laughs> went through 57. And it turned out that was, that was not true. He was three seconds off on all the splits. But I ended up running 352, which was a nine-second PB hmm. uh, in one race. And I'd been, I'd been training hard for like five years at that point. Um, and, and so in one race to go nine seconds, and then the next race I ran, I ran 349, and the race after that I ran 344. So I improved by 17 seconds in a matter of weeks. Hmm. And there was nothing in my workouts that suggested I would improve like that. And so that moment was like something is weird about these limits that I, you know, when I was running 401 over and over again, it's like whatever I felt was limiting me clearly wasn't physical because three weeks later I was running 344. So that was kind of the start of my trying to understand what, what are the limits that we face and, and what defines them. And it turns out I found out, you know, later when I got into writing about sports science, there's this whole uh, area of research that's really blossomed in the last decade or so, looking at the role of the brain in endurance and, and speculating that um, a lot of the limits that we perceive as physical are actually mediated by the brain. So the book is kind of a, it's a white, it's not just about running, it's kind of a big exploration of the series of what endurance is and what limits it, whether you're, uh, you know, climbing Mount Everest or free diving at the bottom of the ocean or trying to run a two-hour marathon or all these sorts of things. And it's a look at different limiting factors like oxygen and, you know, your muscles, uh, heat, hydration, pain, and all that. So it's, I like to think of it as, as the definitive exploration of what endurance is. Hmm. Sounds very, very interesting. Um, you know, as mentioned, I think a lot of people who are listening to this uh, will know you not only as, uh, you know, a tracky commenter, uh, you have appeared in Canadian running as well, but for your runner's world uh, column, you know, as, as the sweat science guy. Uh, one thing that I really liked was in your last column, you wrote about the pillars of distance running and you know while you talked about some very complex stuff at, at times but you always found a way to make it very simple as well too what i liked about that last one was was you basically broke it down into the meat and potatoes it's you know you're probably overthinking this these are the basic building blocks of what you can do to be faster and to get more out of your running is that something that you did on purpose and is that something that you've been thinking about for a while yeah, it's really like, because again, I think a lot of runners are like this, like like me, in that we love to think about the details and we love to pursue the edge and, and, and think about the, the subtle ways that we can make ourselves 1% better. But the, the problem with folks, and, and, and in, in a sense, you know, that's the whole, the whole reason for my column or the whole focus of my column, I've been writing flood science for about 10 years, is, is the, the search for that 1%. And, and the the problem arises when you spend 50% of your time searching for that 1%. Um, you know, you should spend 1% of your time searching for the 1% and 99% of your time on the 99%. So it, in a way, like writing about and, and researching and talking to people about, uh, you know, the limits of performance and, and ways to get faster, one of the themes that always comes comes back is that, oh, yeah, this may work a little bit, but it's more important to do you know, A, B, C, and D, the, the, the basics. And so I kept hearing that over and over again. And so, so kind of in that final column, I wanted to make sure I put the emphasis on, on the important stuff. And that it's okay to, to find the other stuff really cool and fascinating, because I certainly do, and that's why I, I write about it. But I, I didn't want to be the guy who was, uh, maybe it's too late to avoid this, but, you know, the guy whose entire raison d'etre was promoting beet juice. It's like... <laughs> No, no. <laughs> there's a lot to get out of. There's a lot to get out of running, and there's a lot to, to do in terms of training properly. That's that's on a much more fundamental level, and I hope I hope that's a message that people, you know, kind of take <laughs> rather than just thinking you can replace the training with a big bottle of beet juice. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic article. I uh, I highly suggest to anyone who's listening uh, who has not read it yet to go search that out. It's on Runner's World. It's under Sweat Science. Uh, with that, you have moved on. Uh, I believe it has, it's been announced as of the release of this podcast, but, uh, but where are you now? Who are you writing for? 
So I'm, I'm moving to Outside Magazine, um, and it's actually, uh, you know, in many ways a lateral move. Uh, sweat Science will, will carry on uh, at Outside rather than Runner's World, um, and I'll be doing v- very similar stuff with a slightly broader focus. It's actually kind of going back to the origins of Sweat Science. Initially, when I started the blog, it was about, really about endurance generally and even fitness generally, the science of fitness and endurance. Uh, and at Runner's World, it was still that case. It's still a case. I wrote about lots of stuff, but you always kind of had to uh, bring back the focus to running. So th- this allows me to just kind of broaden my scope a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, it's a, it was a way of freshening things up a little bit because you, you can only, you know, running is a lovely sport. And, I, you know, I run every day, but you, I was worried that I would start to run other things to say if I was only, only writing about running. So, so I'm excited to, uh, to have a chance to kind of broaden the scope not just about other endurance sports like cycling and, and things and, and triathlon and so on, but also about outdoor adventure. I'm a, I'm a big backpacker and hiker and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's the plan. Sweat science will be there, uh, a couple times a week, uh, just as it was with, with runner's world and, uh, and I'll be tackling similar topics. He's Alex Hutchinson. Uh, you can find him on on Tracky. Sometimes he he still comments there. Uh, a Hutch, you know, it's it's mostly factual when you read it under there. Not so much some of the other guys. Beware where you get your science <laughs> from. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter at Sweat Science. Uh, he has his book coming out in the new year called Endure. You can find uh, more details about that on his Twitter. Also, look up that Runner's World article. Really, really good stuff there as well. And uh, enjoy a nice big bottle of beet juice. Uh, thanks <laughs> thanks a lot for being on the show today, man. Uh, really do appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. It was a, it's a lot of fun to chat. The Scotia Toronto Waterfront Marathon is the pinnacle of marathon racing in Canada hosting the Canadian Marathon Championships the last few years, but also attracting a fast crowd internationally. It's an IAAF gold label event held together by Alan Brooks of the Canada Run Series, and luckily we caught up with him during this very busy time. Have you ever thought about the irony um, that as a lot of runners approach your event, uh, the Scotia-Toronto Waterfront Marathon, they're kind of tooling down, they might have a little more energy because they're running less and less miles, but, well, as they're tooling down, you're really ramping up and uh, and you're pushing everything behind everything uh, as you head into this thing. Yeah, I, I guess the sort of cycle um, uh, is a little bit different with the taper for, for the, the runners and uh, the, the final push for the line. I often tell people this last sort of two weeks is like us being at 37K. And you just got to put your head down and get it done, get across the line. But, you know, I think on both sides, whether it's the, uh, you know, the 15 full-time staff and we have a Canada running series, we have over 600 area managers this year, over 3,000 volunteers, whether it's on the organization side or the 25,000 runner side, uh, you know, everybody's pouring an awful lot over the last few weeks uh, and just trying to hold it together. You know, we had two scratches of the elite athletes and um, on the women's side, uh, and these things happen. Uh, you know, the, you look at social media and people are sort of, you know, going to massage and physio and trying to hold it together for one more week, two more weeks. So even though the timing's a little different, I, I, I think what we go through is very similar. You know, there there are just so many exciting stories going into this race. Uh, I hardly even know where to be in. So let's begin with the with the half marathon. I mean, the half marathon has always been uh, quality, but I think you guys have really taken it to the next level this year with a really really big name debut. Uh, talk to me about that. How did you get them there, and uh, and what what is that race shaping up to be like now? Well, uh, again, um, well. Definitely the half marathon has, has become a sort of massive event in itself. Uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, um, someone, Kathy Butler it was, telling me um, the marathon was the pinnacle of road, road racing. So you're talking about Cam Levins, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and it's great to see him coming back. Uh, and we hope that his doing the half marathon uh, this year is great preparation 
for him making his marathon debut. He says he wants to do that at Waterfront Marathon next year. Uh, and, you know, it, it's an opportunity to get in with uh, the big guns. Cam has obviously done that uh, on a massive scale on the track. Um, but he'll have an opportunity to run for 20K with the guys going out in the marathon group A, running around 259, uh, three minutes a kilometer, and and run with them all the way to 30 uh, to to uh, run with them all the way to 20k, where you know the the half marathon peels off to the left and comes back up Bay Street to the finish, and then uh, if he runs around uh, 63 minutes, uh, it'll be his half debut. It'll be a great introduction to the 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 distance. And it should give him a really strong qualifying time to represent Canada, one of those four places, uh, going to the IAAF World Half Marathon Championships uh, March the 24th next year in Valencia, Spain. So, again, it's a stepping stone to get to Valencia, uh, maybe to make a marathon debut next year. And if he uh, races in Valencia again, he'll be making that transition, I think, from the track to the roads and slugging it out with the big boys, uh, the fast dogs, um, uh, on the roads, not just on the track. So yeah, we're really exciting. Uh, excited about about Cam. I think generally one of the big stories this year. We saw it sort of playing out a little bit last week in Chicago. Um, you know, everyone in America uh, is asking. You know, is there life? Uh, uh, after Meb is, is their life after Dina uh, and um, boom there you go with Galen and Jordan uh, and so this year uh, we have uh, Reed Corset injured 38 years old uh, working on uh, our elite athlete hospitality team uh, Reed Swahili is pretty good so he's <laughs> a fabulous guy to have on that team Um uh, but he's working on the organizing team. Uh, we've got Lanny Marchant, who will be in the uh, uh, broadcast booth, uh, watching all the different screens with the feeds and doing social media as she comes back from her illness. We've got Rachel Hanna, who will be uh, our research uh, person uh, supporting the broadcast in the studio. Uh, of course, Krista will be part of the live broadcast team. <laughs> and uh, Eric's gone back to the land uh, in, in Andiganesh. So we're asking that question in Canada. Who, who's going to step up? Are we going to see someone on the women's side, uh, on, on the men's side? You know, can, can uh, a Sammy Jabril or a Trevor Hoffbauer on debut, you know, really make a statement? Can... Someone like Leslie Sexton uh, or Natasha LeBeau scare 230 or get on the right side of 230 and, and again, step up uh, to, to replace some of our fantastic sort of first-gen, um, you know, marathon heroes. So that, that's what we'll be looking for. And, of course, Cam is part of that, uh, doing the half this year. Uh, and, you know, how well will he do at the half? Uh, and uh, can that lead to an amazing marathon ne next fall? You know, I have uh, I have the Thanksgiving tradition, and I'm sure you, you have the exact same uh, Thanksgiving tradition as I do, and it involves watching the Chicago Marathon. Uh, it was just maybe two years ago I watched Chumba, you know, take the win there in, you know, a completely dominant sort of fashion. I think it's really cool that yeah. uh, that Chumba is in Toronto this year. Do you have him as the favorite to to win the uh, to win the the men's overall? You'd have to say he was Philemon uh, Rono, who won last year and you know ran two eight on a on a really humid day. I was looking the other day, and it's kind of interesting, Michael. The the median uh, finishing time last year for men was thirteen minutes slower. Um, it was like. 409 as opposed to 356 
so it was like 12 minutes slower than the year before when it was cool. Hmm. Uh, and so Philemon ran 208 here last year. Um, and uh, uh, we've given him, of course, as a returning champion, number one. Dixon will be number two. But we are excited. Uh, as you say, Chicago, his, his great race, um, he's been there the last few years, so we're, we're thrilled that he's coming to us. And again, in Tokyo this spring, um, he was really the only one that went with Wilson Kipsang in an incredibly brave, courageous run. What were they, something like 14-14 mm-hmm. uh, at 5K, uh, uh, 28-50 or something um, uh, at 10K, uh, and... Uh, uh, Dixon was the only one who hung on to about 35k before uh, Kipsang made the final push. So, 204 guy, 205, 206 guy. Um, we we just hope we can get a good day for him weather-wise. And then uh, Solomon Dexisa went out in that lead pack. He'd run 206 uh, to be second in Rotterdam last spring, and uh, he went out and. Uh, uh, blew up, uh, uh, but went out with that that um, you know uh, t- twenty eight fifty group uh, at ten k uh, in-, in Tokyo in the spring. So we've got him on the start line too. Uh, so uh, I think it should be a really uh, uh, a- exciting race. Endershaw uh, um, Nagese, um, he he won at hmm. Tokyo in 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 twenty. Uh, 2015 and 205, um, he should be in that that lead group with Cam Levens. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I think there should be a lot to keep us on the edge of our seats. Another storyline that I wanted to touch on that I've been reading a lot about uh, is the Britain versus Canada storyline that you've set up this year. Uh, I want to know a little more about that. You know, where'd the idea come from and uh, who are the people to watch uh, as that unfolds? Well, we've been doing it for about 10 years, and it started as a more formal thing in the last five years or so. Um, It's, you know, just become something of a good challenge for bragging rights. Uh, But we have this partnership with England Athletics, and I have to say they're always the best dress team. They come in these amazing uh, EA uniforms, tracksuits, shorts, singlets, the whole thing. And we have two women this year, uh, Tish Jones, uh, who uh, ran 233, um, oh, what did she run? 233.50-ish uh, in London this spring. She won the Cape Town Marathon uh, last fall uh, in South Africa. And uh, Anna Boniface uh, from uh, uh, Reading, just outside London, Reading AC. She she ran two thirty seven in a few seconds at London this spring, and uh, Anna was the first person, the first woman in the non elite race. Uh, so she's since got herself all these sponsors, and uh, with the two of them, with Tish and Anna in that two thirty three two thirty seven range, we figured they should be right in there. Uh, with uh, uh, a whole pack of our Canadian women, uh, you know, the likes, as I mentioned, of of Leslie Sexton, um, uh, of Natasha Lebeau, uh, and uh, we have a a whole group more that are, I I guess, Canadians hoping to get just on the right side of of 240. Uh, Catherine Watkins, uh, immensely popular, 45 uh, your old uh, Canadian master, um, she, she'll be giving it one really big, serious go to get under 240. And then Ariane Rabi from Montreal, um, Mel Myran from Montreal. Uh, there's a whole group of women that we have in that sort of low 230s to high 230 range, and we hope we'll get a good day a little international competition. There's a Mexican girl, uh, um, to Fabiola Perez, who should be in there. And with the competition, 
uh, maybe uh, everyone can take a few minutes off uh, and again uh, we can start to think about as a parent you know people to come and build out the depth mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, there are a few debuts that, that I really have had my eye on including uh, Trevor Hoffbauer how do you think those uh, you know taking a look at some of the more high profile Canadian ones how do you think those guys will, will fare on the Toronto course you never know with the debut, do you? Uh, some people knock it out of the ballpark. All I would say, and you probably have to talk to Dave Scott Thomas and Trevor, but, you know, people have form. Uh, they have an MO. Uh, and I know um, when, when Eric uh, Gillis debuted, uh, Dave had him run a 213 down in Houston as a sort of first effort to get comfortable, not go eyeballs out. There's a big group that are trying to get, you know, 217, 219. There's Rob Winslow. There's Kevin Coffey. There's John Mason. There's three English guys. There's Josh Bolton. Uh, so that, that could be a really good group to, uh, you know, to push each other along to uh, and try and, uh, you know, improve their times uh, build their athletic careers. So one thing that I, I really want to touch upon is uh, the fact that we are missing Ed Whitlock for the first time at this event that has really been tied to him uh, this year. But you guys are doing something very, very special about it. Um, you have a couple pacers in the field with very significant times. Perhaps you, you can explain what those times are and, and what they mean to Ed and people running. Sure. Um, well, two guys have stepped up. Uh, Nick Coker from uh, uh, Black Ones, and Noel Guy from Longboat, uh, and Ben Kaplan from Iron. And they are running um, with Ranawer Club, the blue singlets that Ed ran several of his most famous races in. Um, and they, they will have bibs on uh, and be running at the three most special, perhaps world record times that, that Ed ran at Scotia Toronto Waterfront Marathon. Uh, 2.54.49 that he ran in 2004 for the M70 uh, age group world record. Um, but 3.15, um, which uh, was... Uh, his M80 record, and then uh, his race from last year, the 356, um, uh, 57, uh, where he set the uh, men's 85 record. Uh, and so uh, um, there'll be paces for those exact times. Uh, I'm inviting people uh, to to run the whole race at those you know, particular Ed Paces to to remember Ed. Maybe uh, they have a little uh, extra oxygen going there. They can chat a little bit with each other about remembering Ed. We'll have a hashtag remembering Ed, too, for, for people uh, uh, to, to make posts and so on. And then when they get to the finish line, uh, Neil Whitlock, Ed's son, will be there to welcome them. We've got confetti cannons. Um, so uh, uh, it'll be a big celebration uh, but while Ed is not able to actually himself run with us here this year uh, he's been so much a part of the the DNA part of the identity of of our race uh, for so many years now really since 2003, 2004 uh, that you know the spirit the the inspiration that, that, that Ed gave to so many of us, uh, that'll be continuing. That'll be with us for a long time. For sure, for sure. Uh, you know, we're we're about uh, less than a week from the release of this uh, going into the race. If people want to watch from home or if people want to watch on the course or maybe if they want to last-minute sign up, you know, what are some options that they have? Yeah, I think uh, they can sign up. Uh, um, through through Monday night uh, online, uh, and uh, we are looking at an option of keeping uh, 
uh, the registration open uh, through dynamic bib assignment uh, right through the week. Uh, but if we do end up closing the online on, on Tuesday, you would be able to sign up at the expo Friday and Saturday at the Enercare Center at the CME there. Uh, uh, the marathon is very close to selling out at, at 5,000. There aren't many places there, so you do want to join the Ed Paces, uh, uh, give Dixon Chumber a run for his money, or <laughs> maybe Angela Tanui, uh, uh in the women's race with her 67-minute uh, half-marathon PR. Um, it, you you uh, better get a moving pretty quickly because there aren't many marathon places left. And if people want to watch online, will there be the live stream this year? Absolutely. Uh, uh, again, um, uh, the Kim Hutchings will be coming over as the main commentator from the UK. Michael Doyle, Chris Shen with him. And if you just go to the website, the homepage, stwm.ca, Scotia Tron and Waterfront Marathon, stwm.ca, uh, on race day, um, 8.15 Eastern Time, uh, there's no geo blocking. Uh, so last year, I think the broadcast was watched in 129 different countries. Wow. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, if you can't be here, uh, either running or cheering, uh, we'd love to, to see you join us on the broadcast. For sure, for sure. And, uh, of course, people can follow along on Twitter, hashtag STWM. Of course, as you just mentioned, hashtag Remembering Ed. Uh, you can follow... Uh, our guest Alan as well too. He's he is on Twitter as well uh, at ALN Brooks with an ES on the end of that. Uh, you can also follow at Run CRS. There won't be all sorts of live updates from Tracky this year because uh, I I heard the guy who normally does that will be running the marathon. But uh, oh boy, oh boy. I really do thank you for for coming on the episode today. Um, Alan, really do appreciate it, and I wish you the best of luck over this next week, and uh, hopefully you can get that that worked out so that uh, the wind is always at my back when I'm running. We certainly hope so, Michael, and uh, thank you to you for coming out and going the distance, uh, and all the other 25,000 people that will come from about 70 countries. Uh, it's everybody's energy together, I think, that puts our city, our country, uh, on the world map. Uh, and the world will be watching next weekend. So all the best, Michael. Go crush it. Thanks a lot, Alan. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to my guests this week, both Alan and Alex, as well as to Tracky for their ongoing support. If you want to find us online, you can do so on Instagram and Twitter at the Terminal Mile. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and of course, Tracky.ca. As of this past week, you can also find us on Google Play. Big thanks to you for listening. This has been the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Mm-hmm.